Hello everybody, my name is Daniel Prince and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show and a very special guest on the podcast today, Preston Pish. Uh, many of you will know for, uh, know of him and listen to uh, his podcast episodes before, whether that's his own podcast or whether uh, appearing on others. Um, really timely, this one, and uh, we wanted to rush out uh, and get it out as quickly as we could because yesterday, at time of recording yesterday, uh, Preston released a Twitter thread about inflation and deflation, which just took Twitter by storm. Um, it was an incredible thread, thousands of likes and thousands of retweets. And, um, you know, I just, I just put underneath and one of the comments would love to have you on the pod to discuss this. And bam, there we were. We, we had it set up within a, a minute or two. And it was uh, just incredible that, um, you know, we could do this at such short notice and, uh, and try and get this out so everybody can can have a listen to exactly what Preston, um, you know, is, is trying to, the message he's trying to get across. So enjoy the show. Uh, before we kick off, um, don't forget, if you're, you're UK-based or access the UK banking system, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten, go start stacking some sats and, um, yeah, get into this uh into this world of Bitcoin. Right, let's get into it. Hope you enjoy the interview. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Today's guest is uh, Preston Pish. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, Preston, and uh, coming on to to speak with me today. Uh, really appreciate that. Hey, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to hear uh, Lauren's first question. Well, let's let's get into it. Fire away, Lauren. <clears throat> when did you find out about Bitcoin? You know, I found out about Bitcoin back in 2015 and uh, it was it was a kind of, I, I didn't really know what it was all about. I was more in the finance realm. I, I was specifically in the finance realm of, of things and studying stock investing and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I thought that there was a major systematic problem in the global economy and I had heard on news shows uh, about Bitcoin. It had just recently had its big run up to a thousand and then it had collapsed down to the $200 price whenever I first discovered it. Um, but I had heard that it was an attempt at sound money. And so when I heard that and knowing what, like my opinions of what the global economy was at that point, and I thought, you know, central banks were going to eventually come to a point where they had to print like crazy. And that's exactly what we're, what we're seeing today. But back in 2015, it seemed like that was more of a tinfoil hat kind of idea um, in the marketplace. But for me, I, I said, okay, well, what is this? And so I started just doing some reading on it because I found the technology just interesting in itself to kind of learn about. Uh, and the, the more that I read, the more fascinated I became with it. So that was really kind of how I got introduced to it. It was more out of curiosity and concern for the global economy uh, and central banker manipulation in the market that led me to Bitcoin back then. So you figured out about Bitcoin five years ago. You got it. That's good math. We can take math off your homeschooling today, can't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, well, do you have any more questions or should we get on with the interview now? I think you should get on to the interview. Okay. Would well, you want to say goodbye to Preston? Bye. Hey, we'll see you. Great question. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Um, thanks, man. Uh, and again, you know, thanks for coming on to the show. It's uh, it's really great um, that, um, that you take the time to uh, answer some of my questions. And, you know, watching your, watching your um, tweet thread unroll last night um, was kind of like, I've been trying to reach out for a while, um, but this one, this was like it got a little attention. Yeah, it was it was good to see uh, so many people had read through it because I know it was a little long. Um, and my big thing is like, hey, let's take the let's take the ego and let's take the fancy language out of things 
and let's talk to the audience in a way that we want to educate them, not so that we can show how smart we are. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I think that's one of my biggest frustrations that I run into with academia and a lot of people just in general, uh, not necessarily in the Bitcoin space, but in, in the academia space, when you talk business and you talk accounting and finance and all that stuff, it's like, why do we have to make this so hard? This stuff is not hard. This is like truly at, at the most basic level, it's adding and subtracting for the most part and maybe a little bit of multiplication and division um, when, you, when you're talking finance. And so I get a little frustrated and... I guess the post that I put out there last night, the post that we're referring to is the, is the one where I was talking about uh, everything that's kind of playing out in the global economy. And, uh, you know, I, I was just trying to make it simple, talking about quantitative easing, universal basic income, and how they're, they're, all they are is insertion points for liquidity into the system. And so the post was laying that out and it was talking about the differences between inflation and deflation, which I think right. are hugely misunderstood terms and it was it was more me venting to be quite honest with you were you expecting such a yeah uh, i mean i'm looking at it now it's like over a thousand retweets like almost three thousand likes is that like um were you expecting anything like this kind of reach i i wasn't expecting quite that much of a reaction for how long the post was because I, I guess my opinion is a lot of people aren't going to take the time to read all that but they are so yeah i was i was excited that people took to it so well all right. Well, let's get into it because uh, we, we can pick a few of these things out. And uh, the way you start it, I think, um, is brilliant. Like uh, central banks are aggressively inflating the fiat monetary base. Since 2008, the US Federal Reserve has expanded their balance sheet from 0.8 trillion. Like that, first of all, that got me thinking like, huh? 0.8 trillion to 7.1 trillion mm -hmm. since 2008. And, <laughs> and that's what I think, uh, you know, it, if you got a real hardcore economist on here to debate me, what they would tell you is, is they would say, yeah, well, they're expanding the monetary base, but they're removing credit from the system. And so those are offsetting each other. And so you're not having an actual increase in the money supply. Because when you, when you talk about the money supply, it's two things. It's the actual dollars. Like if you pulled out a dollar bill out of your pocket, that's monetary base money. Uh, for Bitcoin, the whole thing is monetary-based money, right? 21 million coins, when we eventually get to 21 million coins, that's base money. The, the rest of the money in the system, which spends exactly like the base money, is the credit. So if you and I uh, went to a bar and we bought, a, we bought a drink and the bartender says, do you want to open a tab? And we say, yes, we just created money. Right. Like there's there's no actual money that was spent. He didn't swipe a card. We didn't pay him cash, but we created money in that event. And so the the hardcore economists, when they when they hear the stat that you just said that was in the, the start of my post, they would argue and say, Well, you know, you you've had all this credit in the system that was created, which spends exactly like money, and then it's traded like that. Those promises are then traded. And so you have this expansion of the total money that can be spent like money. And when you can, and when you look at monetary-based dollars plus that credit, if one of them is expanding and the other one's contracting, did the money supply change? And the answer is no, it didn't. But what I think we're at now is the credit isn't necessarily contracting. They're ex they're expanding that and they're expanding the 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 base, and you're now having for every dollar that that's dropped onto the market in monetary base, it's actually expanding the money supply by that $1. That's where you're at now. And so somebody trying to make that argument today, I think is, is falling on their face. You know, maybe after 2008, 2009, you could, you could make that argument, but I don't think you can make it now. So if you were to like sum up at, in the simplest terms possible, the difference between inflation and deflation and what that means for like the common person, how would you, how would you do that? Well, I'd first tell them the, to read the, the post. So it, I'm sure you have show notes, uh, Daniel. So I would take that post, take that Twitter post and put it in there because it's probably going to do a better job than me trying to on the fly, uh, organize my thoughts around this. But let me start off by saying this. So 
it's all relative to whatever you're comparing it to. Like I can show you the S&P 500 in a deflationary chart and an inflationary chart. Okay. So like if I pull up, uh, I, I use TradingView. I'm sure most people do because it's just awesome. <laughs> um, and so if I, <laughs> if I pull up the S&P 500 measured in U.S. dollars, it has an inflationary growth to it, right? If I pull up that same chart, the S&P 500 and measured in Bitcoin, it has a deflationary appearance to it, right? So before we can even throw around those terms, just like casually, like everyone does, you have to think in terms of, well, what am I measuring it? And so like, I can say a, a bold statement, like the US dollar is going to hyperinflate. Okay. And I can make that true depending on what I measure it in. So if I measure it in dollar, or if I measure that, that statement that the US dollar is going to hyperinflate, if I measure that against Bitcoin, that is, that is a very true statement over the last 10 years. Because if I pull up a chart of the value of Bitcoin measured in dollars, it's hyperinflating. Okay. I can, I can pull up a chart of the US dollar and measure it in Zimbabwe currency and it's aggressively deflationary. So I think the point that I'm, I, I guess I'm trying to make is like, what are you measuring it against? And so most people, when they talk about inflation, they're talking about the CPI bucket, right? They're talking about this, this basket of goods that governments have declared as the measuring stick. But and if we could um, just clarify, CPI stands for Consumer Price pr Index. Yep. Consumer Price okay. Index, exactly. So, um, Which measures goods and services. Which measures goods and services for the ones that are in the basket. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're saying, hey, this is my ruler, which is, CP, which is the government's way of measuring inflation, and they get to pick and choose what's in that basket, well, then if they control and, and, and adjust the price through policy of the items inside that basket, they can, make, they can make inflation look like whatever they want. And if they're publishing this um, in a way that benefits them, which they are, because if you look at CPI, they've adjusted it. Go, go do a little research on Google on how they've adjusted CPI over the past decades. And they have, they've, they've adjusted it. If, if you use CPI metrics from 30 years ago, guess what? Your inflation is significantly higher than it is today. Okay. So that's an important thing. So you have to ask yourself, well, why, why do they want to do that? Well, they want to do it because they cannot afford higher interest rates based on the way they spend period. Um, if interest rates, if, if CPI was, let's just say it was double where it's at right now, they then would have to issue debt based off of that, that hurdle rate. Cause that's how you got to look at inflation from a government standpoint. It's a hurdle rate. Like why would anybody own something that's going below that unless it's forced upon the population, which is where we're at now, which is what they're trying to do, which, which is what they are doing. Um, but for the rest of the market participants, and, and then you look at the fact that like corporates are priced at a premium above those government risk, quote unquote, risk-free rates. So by them doing this, because they can't afford higher interest rates, they're polarizing the corporate market. They're, pol they're polarizing the prices of everything, literally everything on the entire planet. And there is no bigger opportunity, as far as I'm concerned, to take advantage of that. If you understand all of those nuances and, and what the solution is to all this. And I think we all know what the solution is. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a Bitcoin focused podcast <laughs> and Lauren had her Bitcoin t-shirt on. So yes, um, for sure. Um, I just want to dwell on what you just said because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I, I believe your, your background and your business and your career has been built around value investing. Yes. And um, following in the footsteps of, I'm sure, Ben Graham and, uh, and Warren Buffett and the greats. That's right. Um, how do you feel right now about, about what's going on? 
do you, do you feel that this is like um, kind of an attack on your your knowledge and intellect around trying to trying to find value companies um, when everything's just been so damn manipulated? To you know, be on I, the- I love this question. And I, I know where you're going and, and I love it. I'm sorry that I interrupt you. I really try not to do that during interviews. Um, I, um, in, and I'm not, a, I'm not a martial arts expert, but I know that there's this, there's this idea that you need to use your competitors' momentum against them, right? As they're coming at you, you need to look at that as an opportunity opposed to a threat. Um, and you obviously got to treat it defensively, but you also got to use it as an opportunity. And so I look at this as not being a threat against my values or this or that, because I don't, I don't want to label myself as, as anything. Uh, I am not a, a lot of people like to say, you're a value investor. Take the label and literally burn it because I'm not anything. I'm my, I am myself in the way that I process information and the way that I look at the markets, right? Will I become a value investor at a particular mo- moment in time? You better darn well believe I will. Uh, and I will, I will harness those values and those ideas to the maximum extent possible. Right now isn't one of those times. It's just not. And it's not because those values are invalid, I just think that they don't work nearly as well when you when you're in a situation where central banks globally are completely debasing money at the speed of sound. I think the thing to do to exercise at that point is the ownership of sound money holistically. Like I I don't know how else to to go about it. Now, where I think this entire community is gonna their eyes are going to pop. Like, what is he doing? Is in the future? Let's just say. Let's just say that Bitcoin becomes just the the choice of money here in the, in this coming cycle, which I think is a very real possibility. Very real possibility. Um, there's going to get a point where people are going to start selling equities. People would start selling bonds in order to own Bitcoin. That could that could happen. And if that happens, you're going to have a major sell off. In a lot of these, because then the market's going to start looking at, well, what's the value of this business, Apple, in terms of Bitcoin? How many Bitcoin is is Apple worth? And let me tell you, the numbers are nowhere near where they're at today if measured in fiat, because they're the, the numbers in fiat today are based on an expanding monetary policy built into the valuation. But if that changes and now you don't have that ability to bid it like you did before, um, the valuations get way different in a drastic way. I've, I've done that math. I think I know what those are going to look like. And um, they're way different. They're way lower. <laughs> and so w- w- if that would play out, I mean, at that point, I become an equity owner, not a Bitcoin owner, right? I transition into equities because I'm looking at it. If, if all these companies start using Bitcoin as their unit of account, and, and this is the important part, and they've got free cash flows, guess what? You're not going to outpace that if you just own the underlying currency. You're, you are going to outpace it if you own the equity. So like that would be my transition point. It's like, okay, well, this worked. And now I'm going to transition into the ownership of all these equities at severely undervalued prices relative to the free cash flows that they're kicking off with a unit of account of Bitcoin. And I'm going to now own those. And when and just as a just as another point, which is a little bit different than the point I'm making right now, well, you find uh, arguments of the amateurs in the crowd that say, "Oh, well, all the Bitcoin's polarized into the hands of a few people, and it's not going to be redistributed this and that and everything else." I hate to tell you, if equity prices get to a point that they're severely undervalued, and these companies are using. Bitcoin as a unit of account, you're going to see all these people with significant positions in Bitcoin reallocate that currency into the ownership of equities. And then you're going to see that currency get distributed throughout the world, the Bitcoin currency throughout the world, because people are willing to sell the currency because they can make higher returns in other places. And that's how you're going to see 
in my opinion, that's how you're going to see the wealth completely redistributed in the entire world. Man, I got some questions. That, that's an awesome, awesome response. Um, never thought about it like that. Yeah, of course, if you start measuring companies in Bitcoin terms, then almost every company looks like a value play. Um, Absolutely. And, and you're not there yet because, I mean, I've done these, I've done these numbers. I've, I've laid out these charts uh, for personal use, right? If I go in and I just pull up Apple, for example, their top line's exploding in fiat terms, right? Mm -hmm. It goes back to my original point that we were talking about is like, well, what are you measuring it against? What's your ruler? What's, you know, if you go and you, and you plot the last 10 years of revenue for Apple, well, the revenues are going up if you're measuring in, in fiat and they're going down if you're measuring them in Bitcoin. How about the free cash flows? In fiat terms, they're going up. In Bitcoin terms, they're going down. So if that company continues to use fiat as their unit of account, well, I don't want to own that company because they can't keep up with the speed of Bitcoin. It's impossible. Um, but if that company starts denominating every dollar they make immediately into Bitcoin and start using that as their unit of account, guess what their free cash flows look like relative to Bitcoin? They're going up and uh, you would want to own that equity. That's why I guess whenever I look at Square, I don't, they're not there today, but if there was a company that's going to start denominating th their revenues immediately as a unit of account into Bitcoin, it would probably be that company. And I think when they do that, you're going to see that it becomes <laughs> it becomes the equity to own, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're not we're not anywhere near this right now. Um, and that's that's my next question. Yeah. What are the signals that you're looking for? What's like a big red a big red flag to you? It's like, huh? Something's... Well, I think that when you have when you have the management of the company start to come out and say, hey, we're going to start denominating ten percent of our revenues into Bitcoin because they're not going to do it with the snap of a finger. These, these managers are, uh, they've got too many shareholders and too much risk to talk to during their, their quarterly meetings and stuff like that. So I think what you, I think if you saw this play out in application, like in the real world here in the future, you're going to see companies that are saying, Hey, we're going to just start holding 10% of our current assets on our balance sheets in Bitcoin. And then the other 90% is going to be in fiat. And then you're going to start to see Maybe it turns into 15%, 20%, right? Um, and it's going to really depend on where we're at next fall with the price. Because, you know, based on the, the way that the protocol executes fiat, next fall is going to be the time frame that is going to be exciting uh, of whether it's going for the breakout or it's going to be humbly put back into its stock to flow orbit and we go another four years. Um, <laughs> And so I think that that's going to be their big transition point is next fall when we're looking at this and whether it blows out. I mean, if it goes, it's, you know, plan B expert in statistics and math and his model saying somewhere at 288K is going to potentially be the top for the next cycle. If you see the, if you see the price blow through that and then it goes to 400K, well, then, then you're getting into the scenario that I've described on some other shows of escape velocity. Maybe that's your indicator that we're achieving escape velocity. Maybe if you look out in the general public and the only thing that you see in the news is Bitcoin on every single news station, well, then maybe you're achieving that escape velocity. If not, well, then, then you got to uh, buckle down and you got to prepare for another one of these, these cycles. So I, it's all going to depend on that transition point, whether you start to see companies uh, doing the things that I was describing earlier. It, it might happen in the night, next cycle. It might happen in the cycle after that. I don't know. Um, but I do know whenever that starts to happen that equities start to look a whole lot more exciting to me, assuming they're repriced, which I'm assuming they will be if you're seeing Bitcoin run in the manner that we're describing the the price is going to be adjusted lower because it, it just it's just one giant math equation right it's just one giant discount cash flow model based on internal rate of return calculations that you're doing hmm and I, I think another like signal might be like 
you know that that morning you turn on your your computer you get an email um from apple or somebody tweets you it's like hey do you see this like the, the latest iphone you can now buy directly from the apple store yeah. in bitcoin but at a discount to fiat like yeah. you know how far away are we from something like that happening oh i i think well let me phrase it this way if it happened in two years from now i would not be surprised at right. all but um but that's going to be dependent on how emotional a lot of this gets in this next cycle. I think the math alone is going to take you to a hundred thousand, like just without any type of reservation. I'd say that um, where it goes beyond that really becomes a story of what's happening in the backdrop from a macroeconomic standpoint, combined with all the other things from, from an emotional and passion standpoint that we're actually seeing playing out in the world right now, do a lot of these movements start piling into this because they see it as a defunding the uh, central banks type thing, type scenario. If, if you have a lot of momentum behind that, well, uh, I mean, I, you, could, you could achieve escape velocity on this next cycle. And I think that that probability is maybe higher than a lot of people are giving it credit for. Yeah, for sure. Okay, um, deflation. Let's talk uh, some deflation. And uh, I know you've had Jeff Booth on the show. Um, I love his book, and he was kind enough to come on my show as well. And really fascinating um, kind of take on things. How can you explain to people exactly um, what deflation is and how that can be both good and bad? So there's no way I can do this any justice uh, over Jeff Booth. <laughs> I've got enormous respect for Jeff Booth, mostly from an intellectual standpoint. I, I admire him from an, as an intellectual and a person who has deep critical thinking skills. I am, uh, I'm a fan, big fan. Um, his book price of tomorrow does this way more justice than I could ever describe. Um, so if you haven't read that, you got to get out and read that book. And I would tell you to go back and listen to Daniel's interview with him. Um, yeah, I, I, when I'm talking deflation, I mean, you're really just talking about whether something's going down relative to something else. Um, like we were talking about earlier, when you talk about, I guess this, this might scratch the itch. So when we look at what's happened, like where we're at today, I would make the argument that it's the result of literally 80 years of inflationary monetary policy, 80 years. And the reason I'm saying 80 and not less than that is because even when we were on a gold standard, I would argue we were in an inflationary monetary policy because they were expanding the money supply by adjusting the money multiplier in, in the banks. So, if my conversion rate, if if I say, all right, for every ounce of gold I have, there's $10 in the system. And then tomorrow I go out and I say, well, it's only, it's it's one ounce of gold for, for $20 we have in the system. And then I keep adjusting that money multiplier so that it expands the the currency in the system. That's an, that's an inflationary monetary policy. I don't care who you are. And, and that was done on a gold standard. So that happened for from 19... Oh, what was it? 1944 for Bretton Woods, 42, 44, something like that. Clear up to 1971. That happened, right? And I have a chart that shows you the money multiplier during that period of time. Then from 71 until now, it's just been expanding the, the credit supply through the manipulation of the federal funds rate. Really from 81, they had a little bit of a blowout period from 71 to 81. And then uh, from 81 till now, they've They've expanded the, the money supply through the manipulation of the interest rates. So when you look at that, that period of time that we're talking about, we're talking about 80 years of inflationary monetary policy. So when you do that, at the heart of all of it, you create an incentive structure. And you have to understand what that incentive structure is when that policy has been exercised for that many decades. And here's what it is. You incentivize people to invest that debasement, that, that money that's debasing continually. You're incentivizing them, them to invest and to create businesses 
that produce and uh, basically commoditize and advance technology. That's what, that's what you incentivize. And the reason why is because if I have a dollar today, what do I want to do with it? I want to go out and invest it. I want to do all the Warren Buffett style things in, in order to employ that capital into the most productive type businesses that are going to change and improve productivity in the world, period. Um, so when you've exercised that for that many decades, that's why you see at the tail end of that artificial intelligence. That's why you see these things that were, I mean, I watched Tesla or not Tesla. I watched SpaceX launch guys into the, into, uh, this international space station and they didn't even have controls, man. They were just sitting there like watching these screens and like everything was taken care of. Like that is, and you have to ask yourself, like when you look back in the last 2000 years, we haven't seen this, this type of explosion in technology ever before. And I would argue it's because we have never had global coordination of an inflationary monetary policy for 80 years straight on a global level. And the reason it's been on a global level is because you have to go back to Bretton Woods and you have to understand how that agreement was constructed. The Bretton Woods agreement was constructed that the US dollar would be pegged to gold and every other major currency in the world was pegged to the dollar. So in essence, everybody in the entire planet was on a dollar standard at that point because the people that controlled the dollar controlled what the heck was actually happening. And, and when you go back to the money multiplier thing I was talking about earlier, the whole world was effectively implementing that policy, whether they understood it or not, because they were tethered and, and fixed to the dollar. So when the dollar comes off the gold standard in 71, guess what? Everybody else came off the gold standard in 71. You're seeing riots in the street in the US. You're seeing riots in the street everywhere, everywhere else in the world. Why do you think that it's all happening at the exact same time around the world? It's because it all goes back to Bretton Woods and it all goes back to everything being tied to the dollar. And, and all of that is coming to a head. So the, where I'm going with all this is you've incentivized the, the decades and decades long uh, incentive structure of creating technology that will improve productivity around the world. So when you pull when you when you pull productivity that far to the left into the into the present from the future because that's what you're effectively doing when you manipulate the money supply you're you're pulling the productivity that should have happened 50 years from now into today that's what's happened well you get to a breaking point and Jeff talks about some of these things in his book some of these ideas in his book where you're going so fast that that like if this was a rocket ship we're, we're going so fast and we're approaching the, the speed of light that the doors and everything's just starting to melt off the side of the spaceship because we've pulled productivity so far to the left. Um, so what do we got to do to survive? We got to slow this damn thing down, man. It is going too fast, right? And so I think that's Jeff's big argument is he's saying we need some type of deflationary force here that that removes this aggressive incentive structure to continually commoditize everything on the planet and this technological boom that's happening. It's got to slow down or else, because think about it. Like I've got a phone in my pocket. I can do all these gee whiz things because I, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to accumulate enough money. I can go out and buy a VR headset and literally play ping pong with a person in Greece, also all while standing here in my living room, which I've done with a VR headset on. And it feels 100% real, like I'm playing ping pong with a person on the other side of the world. Like, who? how many people are able to have that experience from a population standpoint? Very few. Very, very few people are having those experiences because they, they don't have the 500 bucks to just go out and drop on a VR headset, right? So... Why are you seeing social unrest? You're seeing social unrest because this system, this monetary system, that's these policies that are being implemented right now are not fair because the money's going straight in, into the hands of the, of the people who will hold all the assets. That's how they're inserting the, 
the new fiat, newly printed fiat. You have to slow that down. You have to, and the beauty of Bitcoin is it's going to redistribute all this wealth just automatically. And I think that that's going to be a huge help to slow this down or, or not necessarily slow down the technology boom, but it's going to help redistribute the money so that things become more fair. And then you're going to have the deflationary piece of Bitcoin. And in my opinion, it's going to happen sooner than later because of lost coins and things like that. That's going to provide an incentive structure for people to save their money opposed to just going out and investing it. And, and that might be a little bit contrary to what I was talking about earlier. And I think it's important for people to understand that when you have a deflationary currency, your hurdle rate for investment becomes way higher. And what I mean by that is if I'm going to go invest my money or my Bitcoins into equity, my hurdle rate, and what I mean by that is how much I expect to get in return for giving up those Bitcoins is significantly higher. I, I demand a higher yield than I would if it was fiat money in a fiat world for the return that I would get. The, the hurdle rate today in the open market is about 3%. People are willing to give up their... If you went out and bought the S&P 500, you're at about a 3%, may, maybe even lower based on the earnings that we're about to see. Um, it, it might be 2% now. Because once you get down in the lower portion, it, it gets a little... I'm, I'm going off on a tangent that's going to get too technical for, financially. But um, you might be at about a 2 to 3% hurdle rate. If it, was, if it was my Bitcoins that I was giving up, man, I would demand today, I, I would have to have like a 10 or 20% hurdle rate for me to give up my Bitcoins today, maybe even higher. Um, and so you're going to, when a person has such a high hurdle rate like that for their internal rate of return that they're expecting to get on their investment, all of a sudden you're not employing capital to, to incentivizing people to invest in, in technologies that are going to improve productivity. You're slowing that, you're slowing that rocket ship down. Sorry. I, I know I've been talking for a very long time. I don't know if that answered your question. Absolutely. And th there's, there's, Another force at play here, which I don't think goes talked about, um, goes very well, goes very unnoticed because by design they they don't want us to ever realize what's going on, and that's this um, concept of shrinkflation, which um, you know is affecting everybody around the world. Um, would you mind just explaining to the listeners um, what what shrinkflation is? So, from a nutrition standpoint, if if you're talking candy bars, this has been a good thing for people's nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, one upside. <laughs> but if it's not candy bars and you're talking about, you know, getting like real food, it's a very bad thing. Mm. And all it is, is it's, it's the companies and their margins, right? Like they have to, they have to make a certain amount of money to stay in business. And if they are just gradually making the amount that they're giving you for the dollars you're receiving or for the dollars that you're providing for that good, um, they can they can sneak it in there and, and hide it from people. The, the inflation becomes hidden, right? And that, I don't even know that that's something that's necessarily captured. In, in I'm sure they have to be capturing that in CPI. That it's based on the number of ounces of milk or the number of. But that would be an interesting study for somebody to dig into. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what you're describing is is nothing more than the market just trying to remain profitable in this fiercely competitive environment, which you'll see after decades of inflationary monetary policy. So, you know, to, to use a real basic example, like the size of a Mars bar has shrunk, even though like the cost of it may have only gone up one or two pennies, whatever, you don't feel the pinch, but like the, the actual amount of product that you're buying is is smaller. And... You know, to, to take it one step further, probably the quality of the ingredients that are being used. Um, Bingo. Right. Bingo. So, yeah, you can't even you can't even go to uh, price per ounce because that would even be flawed in your thinking. You'd have to count how many nuts they're putting in the Snickers bar because I guarantee you it's probably way less. Whatever the most expensive ingredient is in that Snickers bar, I guarantee you there's a whole lot less of that than there was 20 years ago. So not only are you losing the size, you're losing the quality, you're losing all that. And it's all a result of everything we've been talking about. 
and you know to to look as well at you know the the people that get bullied along down the supply lane right in down down the supply chain um you know if you're a sugar producer uh, to a monopoly they can they can kick you around as much as they like it's uh that's right yeah no uh, i mean it's 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 got all sorts of hidden implications if you're not digging deep and have a lot of critical thinking um and, and, this, and it's really hard to see because it doesn't happen quickly. Like mm. the, this progression of what we're talking about is very hard to see just because it happens over a 20, 30, 40 year period of time that, that it's eroded. But I think everyone who's of the age of 40 or older can remember what things looked like when they were kids. And it looks way different today than it did back then. Let me tell you. Yeah, for sure. So what's the, um, what can, I mean, you're, you're based in the US, um, like the, the pictures and stuff that we see um, from around the world, um, you know, scary as all hell, can't believe what's going on. Um, and that has already started spilling over into different countries, which you um, alluded to earlier. How can we like try and help people understand that, um, you know, th there is this asset, there is Bitcoin, there is something that can give them hope and it doesn't have to be, you know, hitting the streets and, um, you know, following history with, you know, violence and, and riots to try and get themselves hurt. I don't know that you will simply because the amount of people that are out there that actually have a genuine interest in this and have an interest in uh, money, because you have to have an interest in, in how money works. You have to have an interest in economics and finance. Uh, or you have to be coming at it from the technical s standpoint of you have a love for encryption and you have a love for programming. Like those are the people that are going to be the ones that discover this first just because they've allowed their mind to focus on that. I think a lot of people in the world have a f have much different focuses and much different interests like you know, I, I just look around in the neighborhood that I live. Well, there's a, there's a gym down the street. That person is interested in their gym. They, that's what they think about. To get them to transition to start having a love for the things that we, we understand and that we have a focus on is probably going to be a difficult thing. Now, with that said, I think the price action on Bitcoin, particularly in this incoming cycle, uh, is going to capture their attention whether they want it to be captured or not. Um, and uh, I think that's what's going to drive the adoption curve that we're going to see uh, in this incoming cycle is just the, and, and that's the beauty of the 21 million and not 21 trillion coins is that, I mean, for me, that was done completely on purpose. And it was done on purpose so that at a certain point in time, 10 years since when it was made or something like that, that it would, it would capture the narrative and it would become the headline. And that's why there's 21 million coins with 10 to the negative eighth units that, that can be pulled into it. Because if you move that decimal point, it, it does the same thing, right? You can move the decimal point to the right. Well, why didn't Satoshi move the decimal point further to the right? That would have been intuitive, but Satoshi obviously understood marketing and branding. Clearly, there's no doubt about it. He understood that or she, whoever. Um, so that's, I think, what's going to drive the interest is just the, the sheer shock of the number on this next cycle. That's what's going to eventually get people to actually have more of an interest in it. And you touch in the thread about UBI, and I'd like to get your thoughts about, um, about that. And um, I'll just read quickly. A majority of people don't have enough money to even pay for their basic needs anymore. Long-term, UBI has its problems, just like QE. But make no mistake about it, the engine is out of oil. We need to get the money into the general population where it's needed most. So what's the... How do you see it playing out, this UBI falling into people's laps? Uh, I think that... When you've done 10 years plus of QE and that's been your only insertion point, because if, if I'm a central banker and I'm going through this and I have to supply liquidity, like they have to supply liquidity, right? 
Um, and the reason they have to do that is because of the choices that were made in the past to manipulate in the past, 80 years of manipulation in the past. You're trying to control, like, it'd be like a boulder that's rolling down the hill and you're trying to shape it in a direction that causes the least amount of damage. That's the best way I could probably describe what, what the Fed is trying to do right now. They're not stopping the boulder. <laughs> Let me tell you, they are not stopping this boulder. It is way too big. That's impossible. Uh, all they can do is kind of push it in to the left or to the right. Okay. And I would describe quantitative easing as all they've done for the last uh, decade is push it to the left. Okay. With, with the insertion of, of the money and in the liquidity going straight to the top and to the, to the wealthy individuals. Now they're in a weird position where they've created a significant amount of momentum for the, this ball that's aggressively rolling down the hill to go a little too far left of the target that they're trying to aim it towards. So now they've got to deal with the momentum in, on that vector, right? And they've got to push it the other way. And the, way, the only way they can push it the other way is through UBI. Now, the problem they're up against is because they pushed so hard on the QE side for 10 years, They've already polarized their interest rates at 0%. Well, guess what? They can't allow that to go up based on the issuance that they have from a fiscal monetary standpoint. They can't allow it to go up. So now they've, they've, they've kind of pushed themselves in this position where they've got to do UBI, but they've also got to keep doing QE at the pace that they were doing it before because if they're going to continue to issue debt, government debt at the pace that they've been doing it, they can't allow interest rates to go up. Well, the only way they can control that is with more QE. So that's where this is getting really hard for them is because they didn't take a balanced approach to the liquidity insertions since 2008, 2009 by doing UBI and QE simultaneously, they've pretty much accelerated the, the, the meltdown. They've, they've, they've made the meltdown happen faster than they would have if they implemented UBI and QE kind of homogeneously throughout the last 10 years, which they have not done. So uh, how do I see it playing out going forward? I think you're going to continue to see a ton of QE. I think you're going to continue to see these international like repo things that they're doing to supply enough dollars into the international market because there's so much dollar denominated debt. I think you're going to see uh pretty big UBI checks coming to people. I think that like they're issuing these money cards to people here in the U S um, I think that this $1,200 stimulus check was just the tip of the iceberg. I think you're going to see probably bigger checks than that happening every single month. They're going to have to, because you know, the, the, the rioting that I think you're seeing in the U S it started with the, with the Black Lives Matter movement and was completely justified based on the person who was murdered, uh, George Floyd's murdering. Um, but I think what you're, the rioting that you're seeing with the Antifa, who are also anti-capitalists, um, is firmly rooted in the idea that people just don't have any money. People are poor and they're looking around and they're saying, well that business owner there has a bunch of money and I have nothing and I've had nothing for 10 years and I don't care. I'm going to light the place on fire because I'm extremely frustrated at this rigged system is the mindset. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just telling you, I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of, of a person who's doing those things. Um, and so I, th I think they're just so angry. They don't have any money. I think the government's seeing it as the chaotic situation that it is. And I think the government's going to have to print like crazy and start putting it into the hands of everybody in order to try to uh, keep some semblance of, uh, of calm and uh, avoid the calamity that's obviously happening right now. So, yeah. And we, we've got these, these um, people that, uh, you know, as you just described, and, you know, that they're asking questions like, hang on a minute, if you can just print money, why do we pay tax? Exactly. And hang on a minute, like, um, how can you just mail me out 1200 bucks? And hang on a minute, how is it we're at, 
what is it now, like 30% unemployment? I know we've got figures out tomorrow, right? Non-farms are tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But uh, what what are we what are we expecting? Any kind of idea for unemployment? I, I don't know. I don't know on that. But it's going to be ridiculously high, right? High unemployment. And yet we've had a three-day win streak on like uh, the Dow. I mean, this month, the Dow has been up almost 3,000 points. And when you look back at like this calamitous month, um, it's just people are going to start asking more questions. But the way you've just described it to me, I can clearly see now that um, people that are, you know, watching financial markets realize, like yourself, massive QE is coming. Therefore, the markets are going to go up. Like asset prices are just going to rise on the back of that. So when you go to Venezuela and you look at the stock market through their hyperinflation of their currency, and remember, hyperinflation against what? The dollar, right? So when you compare their currency to the dollar, it hyperinflated. Their stock market went up through that entire period of time. Well, why did it go up? Well, because it's measured in the units that are being expanded. So if, if I looked at their stock market in dollar terms, did it go up? No, it went down, right? But that's lost because uh, people do not think to, to the idea of how, what am I measuring it in? Mm-hmm. If I'm measuring their stock market in terms of Venezuelan currency, well, yeah, it's going to go up because they've created more units. Um, I, I think you're seeing the exact same thing here in the U.S. Like if they're going to continue to create more units of the dollar and expand it aggressively, well, of course the stock market's going to go up in nominal terms, in dollar terms, but in Bitcoin terms, that thing's been going down for 10 years. Man. I've got the chart. I posted it on my Twitter multiple times. And the hilarious thing to me is the, is all the Wall Streeters that will step in and be like, well, measure it from December of 2017 and then it's not going down. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> you're just dumb. <laughs> but hey, I can do that chart. I can give you that chart. If you want to take that myopic point of view and you want to mm-hmm. see that chart, I'll give it to you but you're dumb. Now, I don't want to speak out of turn here. You know, I'm not American, but I know there's, uh, I mean, we're going into um, election year and, you know, measuring the stock market has always historically been a a good way to beat the drum if you're trying to win votes. So is there a little bit of politics at play here as well? Like if we just print, then if as long as the Dow and the S&P are still nice and high, I'm going to get those votes I need? You know, it's kind of funny how the political narrative three years ago was that this UBI thing was mm-hmm. a Democrat thing, right? This was a, this was a far left idea. How dare we give money to everybody? And it was, I would have conversations with people and I was like, Hey, I know it sounds like I'm a Democrat when I say this. And I assure you, I am as hardcore apolitical as they come. <laughs> I think, honestly, I think a person who sides with one party speaks more to the gaps in their thinking than it does to the knowledge they have. Because when you can understand both sides of the equation, you can, you can be extremely lethal in the way that you react to the circumstances in the world. So, um, but back then I was, when UBI was being talked about on, on the left platform, I was like, I think that's going to happen regardless of who's in office. It's going to have to happen because you're going to get to a breaking point where this polarization of wealth is going to reach a breaking point. Uh, and, and that was correct because <laughs> now you're seeing, I mean, heck, you just saw the Republican uh, far right start implementing UBI. And they might not be calling it that, but that's what it is. Um. So yeah, from a political standpoint, they're, they're always going to be on both sides. They're going to be, uh, positioning themselves to, to capture more power. That's what it's all about. Right. Um, all you have to do to understand how they're going to act is just look at the incentive structure. You just got to look at the incentive structure. What's going to get them the most votes. Okay. Well, considering 90% of the population needs UBI right now, that's probably a really good place to be politically, right? Well, now it becomes popular. Before social unrest broke out, 
which is what we're seeing now. Before that happened, you didn't have 90% of the population that wanted UBI. You maybe had 30% or 40% or whatever. But as those, as those circumstances shift, you can look at the incentive structure and say, well, yeah, I can see why the, the, this party would now adopt this. It's, it's really just that simple for me. Right. Well, I, I know you're going to be running low on time, so I'll bring it back to Bitcoin for the last um, couple of questions so we can uh, round this out nicely. Um, in your work and in your podcast, you speak to um, many uh, you know, wealthy people from um, you know, all over the place. Um, what, what are you seeing? Are you, are, you, are you finding like people are coming to you asking more about Bitcoin um, in this kind of like lead up to what we think is going to be the next cycle? Um, are you, are you being kind of surprised by the amount of people that already own it that, um, you, you probably hadn't accounted for? What's, what's kind of like your like take on this? Here's the difference. So back in 2015, <laughs> right. when you would talk about this, <laughs> you would literally get laughed out of the room. Right. <laughs> um, and whenever I told people that I owned this back in 2015, they thought I was nuts. Today, here's the difference. People know something is wrong. They know something is very wrong. And now they're, they're just more open to this idea that maybe this could be something. And because of that, I think the conversations, like when I told people about Bitcoin back then, be like, oh yeah, nice, cool story, bro. And now, now it's like, hey, tell me some more about that. What is that? There's an interest. And there's an interest because they know something's wrong. They don't know what's wrong or how it's wrong or any of that, but they know something's wrong. And so I think that that's only going to, that curiosity is only going to get stronger as the price goes through the previous all-time high. Because in the past, the common argument is, it's tulips. This, you, no one controls it. Who, who made it? Like, you're nuts. How could you possibly put your money in something that you don't even know who made it? Uh, to uh, this time around, well, how, how in the hell is this thing going over 20,000 US dollars for one fake internet money unit? Like, and it's been doing this for 20 years. It's just gone up. And, and if you bought at any point in, in the history of the last 10 years and held it to today, you made money, no matter which day it was, that's not, that becomes a very, very hard thing to argue with. And it sparks curiosity like nothing I've ever seen in my life. Just quickly, was it like, I found it very, it was a real block for me when I was coming into Bitcoin, the fact that there was no CEO. Like, and for you, like studying companies, this is what you do, right? You, you look for value. I'm sure you go through like, you know, who's in the C-suite and yeah, along comes Bitcoin. You're like, huh? Well, and, and when you understand central banking and you understand monetary policy and the issues that it can create, those issues are produced through centralization of control and manipulation. And so to see something that was the polar opposite of that was from the very start was very enticing to me um, that it had no CEO, that it, that it was a simple, it was simply a protocol executing uh, money like a processor does in a computer. Um, so I don't know. It's what some people see as a disadvantage. I, for whatever reason, saw early on as being the hallmark of, of why you should own it. Yeah, no single point of failure, right? Which is uh, a huge one. Okay, final question then, uh, Preston. Um, if you had just one red pill left in your arsenal to to give someone, <laughs> just one, who would that person be and why? Ray Dalio. Yeah, <laughs> straight in there. No, yeah, yeah. right. Um. Yeah, I think he, I think from a, um, when you think about what's going to take this thing to the next level, I, you, as much as I can't stand most people on Wall Street, um, you need that community to start participating in this market. 
because they're the ones that control the purse strings of, of society. Um, and I think for everybody on wall street, there's no bigger macro name and person who understands exactly what's going on than Ray. So if you red pill Ray, I think you're going to have a lot of people on wall street, just like Paul Tudor Jones. I mean, that was, that was one heck of a red pill right there. Yeah. If you're going to red pill another person, I would say Ray Dalio. If you red pill Warren Buffett, that would be massive, <laughs> obviously. I mean, those are the names I'd be looking at. Excellent, man. Well, what's, um, what's your final message for anybody listening today? And where can, um, what, yeah, you, you, we'll start with your final thoughts and then where people can find you. Oh, so uh, I run a podcast. It's called We Study Billionaires. Uh, we'd love to have you in as a listener. Um, I have a website called the investors podcast.com. Uh, we have uh, financial tools there that, uh, you know, help people analyze uh, equities. I, I might be working on something that actually denominates uh, some of all these, this analysis in Bitcoin. It sounds know? like it might, <laughs> might be coming out in the future. Uh, <laughs> you heard it here first. But, listeners. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm very, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, just Preston Pish, P-Y-S-H on Twitter. I would love to interact with you there. Um, and yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity, Daniel. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Yes, awesome questions. And I look forward to, to staying friends and communicating in the future. Thanks so much. And whilst I've been doing this, um, I've had your thread up, which I've been uh, dipping into. And it's still going crazy, man. Uh, I'm, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you've been watching the likes and retweets kind of flicking yeah, up on your screen. Um, it's been wild. It's, uh, it's great to see. Um, clearly means it's important and um, resonating with a lot of people. So, you know, I feel privileged to, to sit down and have this conversation with you. And, you know, thank you so much for, for reaching out and uh, agreeing to come on the show at such short notice and for being up at like 6 a.m. to do this. It's, uh, <laughs> it's My pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. I'm sure you're going to go now do like some kind of crazy one hour workout or something. Then you Get got it. Me. I'm getting on my Peloton. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, Preston. Have a great one. Thank you so All much. Right. Hey, see ya. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that one with Preston. I certainly did. I thought it was uh, incredible to um, pick his brain and um, see what rabbit holes um, he's finding himself in as uh, he watches. Well, you know, this is his day-to-day, -day, right? This is his thing. He's watching as closely as probably anyone out there what's going on in the markets, what's going on with the uh, latest policy changes, how are markets being manipulated, how's that going to change the price of goods, services, stocks, you know, real estate, whatever. It is. You know, he's coming at this from a macro point of view with uh, in-depth knowledge and um, holding Bitcoin as well as understanding the whole fiat monetary system and, and how that's how that's working. Um, my biggest takeaway from the whole thing was like what he was talking about is like when I asked him the question, you know, how can you like sort through all of this and find any value in any of these companies when the market has just been manipulated to the point of you know, criminality in some, um, in some people's eyes. I mean, certainly it's like bailouts and things like that and just uh, printing just tons of cash uh, in this kind of blind quest to make it look as though the economy is working fine and look at the stock market. Um, you know, it's the most basic barometer for people to look at when really, you know, behind the scenes, it's just a great big mess. You know, how do you sift through all that and find companies that you, you can invest in? And when he drops the bombshell, like, you know, what are you measuring in? If you're measuring in fiat, then yeah, well, look at this. But if you're measuring in Bitcoin, then that is a completely different story. And when are we going to reach this inflection point that we talked about in the show? Um, you know, what are the signals that, and to use Apple again, like, you know, how much cash that I have on their balance sheet, they're just cash just sitting there. It's almost nonsense that they have not just taken 1% of that and set that aside to put into Bitcoin just as like a non-corollary hedge it's not going to be long you know there's it's not going to be long especially in these tech companies where um some people in the boardroom might already be holding bitcoin 
you know, you've just got to look at companies like Google or Facebook um, or Twitter. Perfect example. Jack's there, CEO of, uh, of Twitter and Square, huge Bitcoiner. And as soon as they start denominating um, and holding and measuring their company's performance in Bitcoin terms rather than fiat terms, then huh, it's mind-blowing. The game is really afoot then. And to, to be in the position that we're in now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're ahead of it. You're ahead of this almost inevitable change. And, you know, if you can just start stacking away as, as hard as you can, if you know, head down, just keep stacking uh, and um, put away w whatever it is that you're able to, this could set you up in five to 10 years like, uh, like, like nothing else. Like it's, um, and this is the beauty of it. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, episodes like this with, with Preston go a long way to, to helping understand, you know, the, the greater uh, economic picture, which we're never taught about. Um, we're, we're never, you know, even if you study economics to like a, a high level, you, you never get that. You don't really scratch the surface. Uh, and until like um, you've, you've studied monetary um, history and, you know, like Preston has, you know, worked within markets and um, seen them close up, how they operate, um, then, you know, for the most part, most of us, we're never going to be able to really understand it. But the point of Bitcoin is you don't need to. All you need to know is there's another option and I could leave my money in the bank and, and watch that not even outpace inflation uh, at 0% interest. If my money is there and prices are going up 2 or 3%, then my purchasing power is just deteriorating. Don't go spend it on like normal, crappy, like high, you know, like high time preference things, like the latest new phone, or you know, get into debt on the latest new television or, or car, whatever. Just um, just start stacking away some uh, some stats, and uh, let's see. Yeah, let's let's hope you're along for the journey. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Reach out to Preston. I'll put his tweet thread in the show notes so you um, you can see that for all its glory, or just go find him on, on Twitter yourself and uh, you'll be able to um, look through it. Uh, and before I sign off, don't forget, um, go start your stacking journey with coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. That's um, for the UK listeners, or if you have access to the UK banking system. If you're in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten. That's where you can head over to, um, to start stacking your sats with um, two very reputable bitcoin only companies thanks guys thanks so much for listening thanks for sharing thanks for um all the banter on twitter and the retweets and the likes really really uh, appreciate it and um yeah i'll catch you next episode